Hello. I'm Derek McTravers, and I'm here with Timothy O'Hagan, who's Senior Lecturer in Philosophy at the University of East Anglia. Timothy, in the Discourse on the Origin of Inequality, Rousseau outlines some form of social contract. And could you take us through that? The contract in the Discourse of Inequality is rather radically different from the one in the, in the book called The Social Contract. The Discourse of Inequality contract is, in a sense, a description of the actual contract which would underlie the present illegitimate societies we live in. It's a specious contract. It's based on relations of inequality between people rather than relations of equality, as the social contract one is. It also is different in the persons who are parties to the contract. It's a contract between the people and its rulers rather than a contract between individuals who come together to form a political group. It's what's been called in the history a pact of subjection rather than a pact of association. Before we get on to, to looking at the, the social contract in the book, the social contract, what would strike you immediately as the pitfalls that might trip up a student in reading Rousseau's The Social Contract? Pitfalls start with the style of the book. It's a very foreign style to a modern reader in a number of respects, although, on the other hand, it seems so familiar. Why is it foreign? It's written in a style of high rhetoric, constant antitheses. It's delivered in this peremptory rhetorical tone that is, in a way, hard to intervene in. One doesn't know quite how to enter into a debate with Rousseau in this book. Alongside that, it seems to be unbalanced in many ways. It's got lengthy empirical descriptions. For instance, in Book 4, the descriptions of the Roman political institutions. It's very unclear quite how one's meant to integrate them with the prescriptive normative sections at the beginning. Last problem is that people go at the social contract in a bullish fashion, as though it were evident what kind of a book this is. That seems to me, again, to be very unclear, at least immediately unclear. My own view is that it's best taken as a theoretical model, particularly in book one, and then, I think particularly in book three and in part in book four, it's a kind of testing out of that theoretical model against actual institutions that have been embodied in the past, an attempt to see just how far this theoretical model could be made to work. Despite those pitfalls, is there a good reason to read The Social Contract these days? I think there are many reasons. First, it is wonderfully unfashionable. It's posed in terms that are universal, critical and rational. I taught the social contract a couple of years ago in China, and it had the most electric effect. Indeed, the social contract itself, I think, is still an explosive text for people who see themselves faced 
by what we could call despotism. At the same time, the model of popular sovereignty that it gives us is indeed a kind of absolutism, also a very dangerous doctrine. And again, what makes the social contract fascinating is that the doctrine is expressed in such an extreme and brutal fashion, with very few arguments, with these extraordinary rhetorical, declamatory, antithetical sentences. And it is, I think, the perfect foil for the liberal critique. It's only when we've read the social contract quite closely that we can understand what Constant de Tocqueville and John Stuart Mill are talking about. For all those reasons, I think the social contract is still an absolutely essential text for us all to read. Is there still a lot we can get out of it today, which is interesting about the contemporary political situation? I'm sure there is. I think that it's probably the most extreme model of what one might call absolute popular sovereignty. And although it's a bit unfashionable these days to mark Rousseau off as an enemy of liberalism, I am still of the party that thinks that there is a major, major opposition between Rousseau's, what I'd call, popular absolutism and what we, particularly in the English-speaking world, know as liberalism. Could you expand on that? I mean, what do you think that the big contrast is between liberalism and Rousseau's thought? It's the problem picked up almost immediately by his liberal critics. Benjamin Constant, in the first instance, then Alexis de Tocqueville, and then following him, John Stuart Mill, in this country... And I think it focuses on the one key element, which is this total alienation of all one's rights in the social contract. And however we finesse that, this total alienation of one's rights, alienation, giving over of one's rights, the retention of absolutely none that seems to me still to be a major contrast between this doctrine and that of liberalism. Right. I suppose in order to unpick that, we'd have to sort out first the problem that Rousseau thought he was trying to solve, Mm. and then secondly, the nature of that alienation. Rousseau sets out what he calls his fundamental problem in Book 1, Chapter 6. Do you have any comments about the way he sets it out? Well, I guess it repays repeating it one more time familiar though it obviously is, find a form of association that defends and protects the person and goods of each associate with all the common force, and by means of which each one, uniting with all, nevertheless obeys only himself and remains as free as before. That's what he poses himself. The problem is to find a legitimate form of polity, which guarantees the freedom of each. 
The problem, however, is that Rousseau is driven by the logic of his exposition to think that that can be ensured only by total alienation by each contracting party of all of his natural freedom. And it's on that point, this notion of total alienation, that Rousseau and the liberals, I think, really do diverge. And I think it's foolish to try to think that Rousseau is a kind of closet liberal. It seems to be much more interesting to take Rousseau as being precisely not a liberal, but being a libertarian, which is a very different thing. Is Rousseau just straightforwardly wrong, then, in in thinking that total freedom for each individual can be preserved by a total alienation of all their rights and interests to an association? The idea of total alienation looks like this. Again, Rousseau's words. All these clauses of the social contract come down to a single one, namely the total alienation of each associate with all his rights to the whole community. Then he gives a rationale for total alienation. Could I just break in here? By total alienation, Rousseau means that individuals give away their rights to pursue their own interests, to plan their own lives. But why would Rousseau think that would be a good thing? Why so? Well, if some rights were left to private individuals, there would be no common superior who could judge between them and the public. Now, that seems to say, if anything is left unalienated, then each person is going to be able to judge on any matter of right or wrong for himself, so it will lead directly to anarchy. Liberals want to say that's not right. There has to be an alienation, so to speak, a giving up of one's right to exercise force over other people. That must be put in the public domain. But it's quite compatible with that, say the liberals, that a large swathe of one's so-called private life, including perhaps one's views on morality on religion and and all the rest of those areas, should be left up to the individual. OK, so on Rousseau's picture, nobody's left with their private rights, so nobody has any rights they can exercise against the public. The Liberals say that we have to give up certain of our rights, the exercise of force over other people, but we retain some rights with respect to our private lives, so Liberals need to draw a distinction between public and private. But doesn't Rousseau himself draw this distinction later in the social contract? I admit he thinks it is the state itself that stipulates where the distinction lies, but the separation of public and private is still there. Is this just one of the contradictions in the social contract? No, I don't think it's a contradiction at all. The driving force of that rationale is, again, I think, wholly consistent. People should indeed be left to sort out their own affairs insofar as those are only their own affairs and insofar as those don't bear upon the public good or the public safety. But, he says, immediately it is up to the sovereign to determine where that limit is to be drawn. So the whole thing does indeed, I think, hold together. One allows for a public-private opposition, but one allows for no 
remotely absolute lines as to where the public-private line should be drawn. That's entirely within the remit, as it were, of the sovereign body. Does this allow an opening for somebody who'd want to defend Rousseau as a liberal to say, well, it surely can make sense for the sovereign to put the line between public and private at roughly the place where the liberal would want to put it? That happy outcome might turn out to be the case. I suppose all I'm trying to suggest still is that there is no guarantee of that within the logical structure of Rousseau's story. You see, I mean, coming back to to where you were asking before, what do I think the point of the whole book is? Well, I think it's meant to be a book about how to replace the absolutism of the Ancien Régime by a radical polar opposite of it, namely the absolutism of popular sovereignty. And a crucial part of that is that the sovereign people should take over the whole of those powers that were previously bestowed upon the absolute monarch. And the key to doing that is to put the legislative process in the hands of the people. So the downside of the Ancien Régime is its arbitrariness, its unpredictability, its picking on individual persons, and so on and so forth. It's a regime, as Rousseau sees it, that is systematically unsystematic. It can't be tied down. It's unpredictable. It's capricious. It's not ruled by the rule of law. And Rousseau's hope is that it's the rule of law in the hands of the sovereign people that will control the activities of the sovereign people in a way that the absolutist monarchies it's trying to replace were uncontrolled. The liberal critique then comes, so to speak, after that, which I take to be a logic of replacement of one absolutism by another, as saying that absolutism too cool is bad. Right, right. That's well, an extremely crude approach, and as I say, not at all a popular one in the present day. There is a much, much more nuanced uh, th- feeling that Rousseau can be made compatible with liberalism. I guess I'm, I'm actually a rather an old guard person on that point, but not on many others. So the contrast is between the liberal, who thinks the distinction can be drawn in absolute terms so that our private concerns can be protected from the state, and Rousseau, who thinks that the state itself is what sets the distinction between public and private. And once we let the state do this, the guarantee of protection is just not there. It does seem to me this is an extremely fascinating part of the social contract. I mean, it really does seem to me this is the bit where it's most relevant to contemporary politics. I'm not thereby trying to claim that liberalism, whatever that might be, has the answers necessarily more readily available than the Rousseau position. All I was trying to do was to say that I really do think that they are quite radically different. The problems for liberalism, of course, are equally just where to draw the line. So I'm not trying to claim that it's any easier to be a liberal than it is to be a Rousseauite absolutist. All I'm trying to suggest, however, is that these do seem to me to be quite radically different positions, each with its associated problems. It's long past time we focused on 
some of the key concepts in Rousseau's positive proposal. The first is Rousseau talks about the notoriously difficult distinction to draw between the will of all and the general will. What do you think the distinction between those two things is? This is, in a sense, the most tricky question that runs right the way through the centre of the book. And in a way, brings us back to a lot of the things we've been talking about already, about the distinction between liberalism and absolute popular sovereignty. The important point is that the will is at the basis of modern contract theories of political legitimacy. A political order in the modern version, in a sense from Hobbes on, is legitimate if and only if it's agreed, endorsed, or, in Rousseau's terminology, willed by its members. So therefore we have to go right back to the very beginning of the book, The Social Contract, chapter one of book one. The basic question is, why should members of society obey its laws? Should they? And then three possible answers are proposed by Rousseau, either because they're forced to do so, or because it's natural for them to do so, or because they've agreed to do so. And Rousseau devotes quite a lot of the opening sections of the social contract to ruling out the first two, force and nature. And he suggests that the only thing that left from that is agreement. Now, the people as a whole, the thought is here, must endorse the basic political order they live in in order for it to be legitimate. Now, I think it's very important that this is all right at the beginning of the book. This is what runs the book up to book one, chapter six, when we actually get the contract introduced. There's then another completely different level, which is the level at which the general will is discussed. Does that make sense? Part of the contract is that we put our powers under the supreme direction of the general will, but the general will then comes to operate once the society, once the political order is going. So these are logically at two different levels, or if this were a chronological story, chronologically at different stages. So the general will then operates, if you like, at the level of governance, and it assumes we've got the legitimate political order in place. It's been endorsed, so to speak, or is endorsable by the, the people as a whole. So once we get governance happening, then the problem of the general will, I think, is in modern terminology a problem about how we can get a rational consensus and how we can get social choice expressed. And we've now got much of the rest of the book concerned with the mechanisms of expressing social choice rationally and legitimately. Now, some of the things here are simple and procedural. You need some kind of majority vote. You need some kind of 
electoral system so that the thing will run. These are, in a way, elementary nuts and bolts. But alongside that, there's a more fundamental question, trying to decide how we ensure that the outcome of this voting procedure is actually going to yield good decisions. And, of course, part of Rousseau's trick is an attempt to show that if you have the most perfect procedures embodied, then that will deliver the most perfect outcomes. But why should these procedures really guarantee the perfect outcomes? Well, I think Rousseau there has, again, some other major, but not always clearly identified, conditions attached. First, there must be no factions, as he calls them. Something to do with pressure groups, something to do with improper bodies within the social whole. But there must be no factions. And secondly, there must be no major inequalities of wealth and power. And they're actually connected. He thinks that factions are, in a sense, going to come almost inevitably when you have major inequalities of wealth and power. Providing you've got those, and providing you've also got rules for ordering assemblies, then and only then will the outcomes be legitimate outcomes. Rousseau does set himself an incredibly high standard of what's going to count as the right outcome or legitimate outcome. You would have thought, here's an association, need to make a choice about something. Well, some people are going to be happy with that choice and some people are going to be less happy with that choice. But Rousseau, in the way he states his fundamental problem, seems to say, well, it's got to satisfy each and every individual in the association. Well, let's look at it this way. Maybe it's not quite so crazy. The basic structure has to satisfy everyone in the association. Sure, that's what constitutes legitimacy. You might say that's putting things too high, but nonetheless that is his view. And that seems to me to be not a crazy view. That might be thought to be the basis of having a legitimate setup in the first place. Once you've got that, then not every vote that's taken is going to satisfy every person equally each time. What's got to happen, though, is this, that there is a level of consensus that each person can be confident that even when one has been in the minority this time and one has had to fall in with the majority vote, that you can be sure that the next time round when the positions are changed, and you are then in the majority, then that those who are previously in the minority will in turn have to fall in with the vote. That's just the elementary rules of the game, you might say, of majority voting. Those, you might say, are the rules that govern any committee or the running committee of the tennis club is going to have to run that way. But more to the point, it's got to be that there is some confidence that you are not going to turn out always to be in the minority. You have got to have grounds for confidence that, in virtue, say, of your sex or the colour of your skin, simply running the rules of the game are not 
in fact going to discriminate against you as the system runs. And Rousseau thinks that that part is going to be satisfied by his added, more complex and more concrete conditions about factions and equality. Right, so if you've run the procedures and you've got the right outcome, Rousseau suggests that even if that wasn't the outcome that you wanted prior to making that decision, then you have to identify with that outcome. So each individual has to adopt the general will and somehow make the general will their own. How does that work? It is undoubtedly true that Rousseau thought that the running of a well-ordered society is closer to the running of a team, a military unit, or some grouping in which there is a much closer identification of interests between the participants and the goals of the team or the group or the unit than seems to be probable, acceptable, or even desirable in a modern pluralist society. I'm running my, if you like, Isaiah Berlin thought that different values come at a price. The price is, I think, a greater degree of identification that undoubtedly is something that Rousseau was looking for on the part of the participants than most liberals are going to be happy with. I'm simply suggesting, however, that it doesn't follow from the fact that Rousseau wants to foster the conditions of greater identification, that each and every person has to agree with the outcome of each and every vote. Those two things, I think, are not the same. So what you're saying is that each individual is as free as they were before they joined the association because they freely assented to the decision-making procedures and are confident that the outcome of the association's decisions will be right. I think that's a very major component of it, and I think you've put that in a nutshell. I think there are other components of remaining free as before, which are in a number of ways connected with that basic core. One enemy that Rousseau has throughout his political writings is what he calls dépendance personnelle, personal dependence. And his thought is that the Ancien Régime is a regime in which individuals have improper arbitrary power over other individuals and those who are in the subordinate position are dependent upon the persons of these powerful people in society. And he thinks that his regime will liberate people entirely from dépendance personnelle. People will be dependent on and only on the sovereign body of which they are equal members alongside all other equal members. And that, again, he thinks is a form of freedom which was systematically denied people in the regime he was trying to overcome. What is it that people then think is dangerous in Rousseau's system? Because what we've got is a confidence in perfect procedures and a confidence that our views will be listened to as individuals, a confidence that we might be right next time, then why have people thought that Rousseau's line of thought licenses a more totalitarian approach or people have found kind of undesirable elements in it? I think that the suspicion is well-founded. 
Rousseau is an absolutist. He does not believe in the division of powers. He doesn't, whatever one may say, believe in what John Locke called the impartial umpire. Once the sovereign people is up and running and legislating, then there is no third party to arbitrate between the individual and the sovereign people of which he or she makes up a part. That, despite all the guarantees that have been written in, despite the voting procedures and the rest, I think once the total alienation has taken place and once we have an absolute unrestricted sovereign people in full command of legislation, such that there is nothing outside that sovereign people and its legislative powers, then I think that the possibility of any particular individual finding that he or she may be manipulated, used and improperly treated, that possibility is not ruled out by any part of Rousseau's system. There's some matter of disagreement that could happen between the individual and the association, which isn't just going to be a case of the individual being in a minority this time. Could you just give an example of the kind of dispute that might crop up? It would seem to me to be at least quite conceivable that the sovereign people might decide that certain kinds of, let's say, sexual practices or religious beliefs or religious ceremonies might be forbiddable for reasons that would be within its power to decide. And even though it's true that the next time round, one might find one was in the other camp, assuming that one is a practitioner of that religion or of those sexual practices this time round, it seems to me there is nothing within the system which prevents it being the case that this time round, you will not end up the object of persecution. I can't for myself see what there is from within the system that guarantees one against that happening. Right now, this, of course, is the area where Rousseau came up with this claim that people should be forced to be free. Why do you think Rousseau came up with that expression, and how does it fit into the logic of his thought? Well, once again, I think there's a relatively anodyne reading one can give to that and a more acerbic reading, if you like. The anodyne reading is that you give your assent to a system which ensures the workings of the majority vote. The free operation of social choice depends and depends entirely on those who have disagreed falling in with the decision of the majority. If on any occasion those who disagree are simply allowed not to do what's been agreed, then the mechanism of government simply breaks down. 
In this sense, being forced to be free means being forced to go along with the rules of the game which guarantee that you will be able to reap the benefits of the free activity of the group as a whole. Is that fair enough? I think that's the minimum. I think that Rousseau is also tempted by a more extreme view than that. And he says as much, namely that you will, in a strange way, see that you were actually wrong when you voted against what turned out to be the general will. That seems to me, in a way, to be radically different. And that's the point, I think, where liberals, again, have reason to be suspicious. Right. So the decision of the majority becomes your decision, regardless of what you had voted Well, yes. I mean, there can be a sense in which we, we all, even in our tin-pot democracies that we live in, we kind of have to go along with that. I mean, even those who may have voted against a particular government are bound by its decisions, and it would be hard to deny that even when one votes against the outcome of an election, one is still reaping the benefits of the general operation of governance that goes on despite your initial vote against the the particular outcome. So in that elementary sense, I think that Rousseau is right. If he's trying to say something rather different, namely that, ah, I realise now that I made a mistake, then that seems to me to be a really quite radically different view from the anodyne reading of being forced to be free. Can I just take you to a different part of Rousseau's writing The Social Contract? And that is this rather odd evocation of the legislator, or the lawgiver. Why do you think Rousseau needed this mechanism, and do you find this a particularly satisfactory part of The Social Contract? I think there's been a good deal of misunderstanding of what this person's doing. I see you're tempted to call him the lawgiver, which I'm tempted to as well. I mean, it seems to me it's a good deal clearer to call him that. But the person has a very specific function, which is to devise a constitutional order for a particular people. How is he to do it? Well, Rousseau says this is an almost divine task, because the people itself, since they are only coming together to form themselves into a constitutional order, are going to be incapable of doing it for themselves. I'm not claiming that this is a wholly satisfactory story, but it does seem to me to point to a real part of the real political process, the sort of thing that, for instance, in the United States, the Founding Fathers did in drawing up the US Constitution. It seems to me it's at that level of concreteness that the lawgiver is operating. Is there a tension between saying that the the fundamental principles of the association are the deliverances of the general will and saying that they're written down by this sort of quasi-mythical divine figure who is the lawgiver? That seems to me what's entirely wrong, you see. I mean, I think that's not it. The terms of the social contract, Book 1, Chapter 6 have to be endorsed by the people. The actual concrete forms of the Constitution, Book 2, Chapter 7, are at a later stage from that. Right. 
because these are, so to speak, coming from two different stages of the process. Book one, chapter six, stuff about the fundamental rules of legitimacy, the basic norms, material about the particular constitution for a particular country or a particular society, book two, chapter seven, lawgiver, and then questions about how actually to run a political process once you've got it legitimate and once you've got a constitution, that's when questions about the general will and the will of all come in. Right. And where does book three come in? All these thoughts about government, different forms of government, the magistrate... That, that I take it, is the sort of stuff that the lawgiver is highly versed in. He has mastered all those rather tricky ratios that are outlined in book three. I mean, that will be the kind of guidelines, at any rate, that he'll be working from. Right. And what do you make of book three? I mean, some of it does, to modernise, reads a bit oddly about this, the ratios of population to kind of government. And is, is, is book three more a product of its time than perhaps the rest of the social contract? Rousseau was much given to schoolboy mathematics. He was extremely numerate, Rousseau, completely self-taught. He was particularly intrigued by the calculus and he was intrigued by all kinds of other mathematical formulae. And he was actually rather good at them all. But he ran this schoolboy mathematics through book three with, I think, a very political agenda. And it all led up to a rather elementary outcome, which was that the larger the society that has to be governed, the more autocratic it is going to have to be. That's actually the denouement of the whole of this complicated and extended set of ratios that he gives us there. And the corollary of that is that since Rousseau is going all out for something as close as he can to popular sovereignty and to an immediately responsive form of government to its popular sovereign master, the smaller the society, the better. Could you just run through for us the difference between the law, which is the deliverance of the general will, and a decree, which is a deliverance of government? You remember that the government for Rousseau is described as merely the servant. Agents of the government he calls the commissaire, merely the agents of the sovereign people. They have no autonomy. This is actually a curious doctrine. It means there is actually no proper division of power at all, even there. Once again, the government is merely on the payroll, so to speak, of the sovereign people. The job of the government is to execute the laws. It's roughly, according to our normal understanding of the division of powers, the executive, and it executes the laws, and the laws are always and entirely general. That's another crucial thought for Rousseau. They describe only general categories. The government executes the laws, puts them into practice, and also acts as magistrates. In other words, there's no division of powers between judiciary and government in Rousseau's system. The job of government, therefore, is particular, 
the job of the sovereign people is general. What is the difference between the will of all and the general will? Or is there a difference between the will of all and the general will? The two can't be defined separately. Both the general will and the will of all are forms of social choice. Both presuppose that a basically legitimate political order is in place, i.e. one founded on consent. Both presuppose that there's some mechanism for expressing social choice, the will of the people. The difference is that when the mechanism is effective, i.e. no factions, no inequalities of wealth and power, and proper assemblies, then each will vote as an individual. And as we've been discussing already, Rousseau holds that a rational choice, a rational consensus is guaranteed. That's the general will. When one or more of the conditions is not satisfied, i.e. there are factions, there are radical inequalities, there aren't properly ordered assemblies, then each will vote as a particular, i.e. as a partisan person. I think the distinction between individual and particular is very important here. One's meant to vote as an individual for oneself, but one's not supposed to vote with particular, that's to say partisan, interests in play. And that will happen when there are factions, that will happen when there are pressure groups, once again, anyone who's been on committees will know exactly what Rousseau is talking about. You think that, effectively, there is a vote being taken on the motion before the committee, and it turns out that, systematically, two or three people on the committee are voting in a fashion that seems to be, in some way, peculiar. And later it turns out that actually these members of the committee have been nobbled by some interest outside. That's the kind of thing that Rousseau is thinking happens when the general will gives way to the will of all. And he gives his own story of how this comes about. Could I ask a question that's going to take us more into abstract philosophical mm. speculations? I can understand people having a will, mm -hmm. because that's something that's in the world unproblematically. I have a will to you know, buy a new car or something. I can understand the will of all, which is as you say, in some way a, a collection of individual wills. But the general will seems a more abstract notion than those two. Is there room for just saying, well... It just doesn't exist. I agree. We've got into the very kind of most elementary and basic part of the whole story. Are there such things as joint decisions, which are truly joint decisions, rather than just decisions made by two people at which a compromise is found between their two decisions? Do you think that... The only real agent is a particular human being. Or do you think that there can be agents which are collective agents? Rousseau thought, of course, that there are collective agents. In order to argue for Rousseau's position, I suppose, you would have to identify 
actions, decisions, acts of will, whatever they might be, that would be actions, decisions, acts of will of the group, which could not be reduced to a simple addition of the acts of will and decisions of particular persons. They would clearly be connected with the particular decisions and so on of the individuals, but they would not be, so to speak, ontologically, metaphysically reducible thereto. The question you pose me is so massive that in order to start demonstrating that, I think we would really need another hour or more to do it. But your point is extremely well taken. But I think that it's quite clear that Rousseau is committed to the thought that is something more to the social act of will, the social decision, than simply the sum of a bunch of individual ones. I agree with you. Perhaps we'll just have to grant that to Rousseau in order to get the discussion going. Can I just suppose that there is a matter of fact about it, the best thing it would be for a society to decide, something that's just going to be in the best interests of that association. Now, how can Rousseau guarantee that there will always be a coincidence between what the members of the association think is in their best interests via this procedure and what is in fact in the association's best interests? I think that Rousseau's strategy in trying to give his answer to your question is extremely fascinating. It's always negative. What he does is he identifies factors which will distort. He identifies roots which must be blocked off. He identifies, so to speak, the sources of error and the sources of distortion... And then the thought is that what remains must be right. But the thought that somehow you can then go beyond that to some point that is wholly outside the particular people and its decision-making procedures, for that he gives us no satisfactory answer. And the reason may be that Rousseau really is not even just a modern thinker, but perhaps almost a postmodern thinker. I think there is a radical lack of foundation to his story beyond what I've been trying to tell you. And this negative procedure, this procedure by blocking, by identifying the sources of error, seems to me to be very central to the social contract. One of those negative factors which he did deal with, which was the, the part of the social contract that seemed to have caused him most problems in his own time, were his comments on religion and civil religion, when he appears to enlist religious belief in the service of the state. And there's some elements of that chapter which have struck people as being sort of very illiberal or very worrying. Do you have any thoughts on that chapter? Yes, I do. It's very interesting that the scholars have shown that Book 2, Chapter 7 on the Lawgiver, and Book 4, Chapter 8 on Civil Religion, were written back to back. And the two chapters have quite a number of things in common. They both invoke factors outside the logic of the rest of the book. 
The lawgiver, you'll remember, is thought to have semi-divine properties and characteristics. And as you say, the chapter on civil religion takes us suddenly into religion, even though the logic of the whole of the rest of the book is entirely and rather radically secular and non-religious. So what's going on in Book 4, Chapter 8, the chapter on civil religion? It's an extremely complicated chapter. The rational kernel of the chapter is that every society needs some kind of ideological glue to hold it together. That, at least, is Rousseau's thought, and it seems to me to be a very plausible thought. So Rousseau's going to use religion to provide the ideological glue to hold his state together. And presumably such a glue would need to appeal to everyone in the state. But do you think his dogmas of civil religion would appeal to everyone? All of them are actually quite exposed theological dogmas. The existence of a powerful, intelligent, beneficent, foresighted and providential divinity, the afterlife, the happiness of the just, the punishment of the wicked. Now, this is a reasonably minimal deist set of doctrines. There's no particular Christian doctrine attached to any one of them. It's common to Catholicism, Protestantism, arguably Judaism and Islam as well. But nonetheless, it would exclude large numbers of people nowadays and arguably extremely large numbers, at least, of the intelligentsia in Rousseau's own time. In fact, virtually all of Rousseau's contemporaries amongst the philosophes. So just why does Rousseau feel the need to import these particular doctrines in to back up his political theory? Well, it's for, I think, a number of different reasons. One is he had an intense dislike of the atheistic, sceptical members of the philosophic community who he moved amongst. He thought that their doctrines were destabilizing, and more to the point, he thought that they were against the interests of the poor and the oppressed. Rousseau thought that actually atheism was the moral impoverishment of the people. Rousseau thought, in other words, that some degree of actual religious belief is essential for morale in order to maintain the social health, if you like, of the state. And it's quite evidently true that this, far from being the standard view of the time, at least amongst intellectuals, would have been regarded as quite remarkably reactionary and old-fashioned. This goes hand-in-hand hand with the fact that it was also regarded by the established churches as being utterly unacceptable, since in the earlier parts of the chapter, Rousseau argues that Christianity, at least as practiced, is a radically anti-social religion and a religion which is actually very dangerous for the moral health of a state. So the status of Book 4, Chapter 8 on civil religion is very bizarre. 
In other words, it's fueled by these different sources of Rousseau's general belief system. The central one, namely that there needs to be some ideological glue over and above merely the habits of law-abidingness. But beyond that, the particular moves he's making here to try and enshrine and enforce by law these minimal dogmas of civil religion, which are theological without being specifically Christian, these seem, it seems to me, to be quite, quite strange. And evidently, as you say yourself, got Rousseau into more trouble from both his atheistical critics on the one hand amongst the philosophes and his religious critics on the other hand amongst the established churches. It is one of the crucial reasons why the book was banned quite as much as its critical political thrust. Rousseau is most adept at making enemies in this book. You said in your reply that considering that societies need an ideological glue is an acceptable position. But isn't there something odd about this? I mean, to put it in its starkest terms, Rousseau realises he faces a problem. In order for his system to work, he needs people to be good citizens. He hasn't really got any good reason why they ought to be good citizens. So instead, for want of a better word, he sort of brainwashes them with a lot of non-rational religious belief. Now, isn't there something rather worrying about moulding people's views in this sort of persuasive but not rational way to make them good citizens? Rousseau's been worried from the very beginning of the book about the problem of the free rider, the person who relies on the law-abiding habits of his neighbour in order to break the law himself, the one who doesn't pay his taxes, the one who wants to enjoy his rights as a man without performing his duties as a citizen. So however good the society is, even though it is effectively working for the good of all... It's an unhappy and brutal fact that there will always be free riders around. Rousseau's thought is that free riders can be punished by the law, but it is going to be an unstable society in which you are having to inflict punishment by the law rather than educate people to obey the law because they want to. And at least part of what's going on in his dogmas of the civil religion is an attempt to get people to obey the law of their own volition rather than because they're forced. Now, it's true that he does bring in these added theological components in the first dogmas, but if one focuses on the last two dogmas, namely the respect for the social contract on the one hand and the forbidding of intolerance on the other, it seems to me that that's the nerve of the ideological glue, which perhaps the other more specifically theological components might be stripped. Rousseau, he's got the ideological glue, he's got the threat of punishment. Does he have arguments as to why we should not be free riders? His overriding argument is that, on the one hand that it's unjust and is, once one's conscience is educated, one will see that one should not exploit one's neighbours. And, of course, Rousseau does believe that we are endowed with a conscience. 
But he also holds in a more pragmatic, a more rational choice fashion that any society in which free riding becomes generalised will become rapidly a radically unstable society. And as it enters that stage of instability, all will suffer, including the free riders themselves. From the Open University. For more information, go to www.open.ac.uk forward slash use.